Hey, 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 fans and friends of the Regeneration Podcast, we're back once again. Uh, Michael, this has to be, I think, one of the crazier times, right? Because you're still, the CSA is up and running. You, um, the bees, you just got some swarms we heard about last week. But uh, what did you get out in the CSA share this week? What did we, we got out radishes, uh, kohlrabi, bok choy, arugula, lettuce, um, bunching onions, garlic scapes. I know I'm missing something. That's pretty good. And then what you put in, you're still planting things, aren't you? Yeah, but it that actually it's starting to mellow out a little bit. The first two months before the two months before the CSA starts are nuts. Yeah. Like 13, 14 hour days. But but it's kind of slowing down now, which is well, at least the pace. I mean, I, okay. there's a few things we have to plan. We gotta keep on top of weeding, but it's not yeah. too bad. But I was I just came in from outside. Well, the bad part I told you last time, you know. No rain. Had, no rain. We had a little bit of rain this week, thank God. We had a lot. But we're it's still drought conditions. The pasture isn't coming back yet. So, oh, no. and my 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 cow and my goat are running out of pasture to graze on. It's just so. My son came to my rescue. My son sent me an early Father's Day gift. Which son, was oh, well, I saw it. Okay, saw it online. Okay, yeah, and it's a light. I one. thought you had, had one. You were talking with a Kings North. I thought, or no, you were talking about Broad Forks. Well, I, well, because I, I have one of those old true value sites, probably from the 30s or 40s, weighs 10, 12 pounds, mm-hmm. and you you tire out quickly, and it's not can't keep it that sharp. But these new ones are aluminum, and they have a really lightweight. And I think the the whole thing weighs like three pounds, huh. so you don't, I don't know it's exhausted. But I you still it's warm out, so I'm sweaty. Say it, Jean. I don't know anyone uh, of whom who can say my goat. Uh, I, 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 I'm very, uh, suburban and urban. Uh, oh, I have, uh, I've had Nigerian dwarf goats. This is one of the rare times in my life where I couldn't say my goat or goats, but I will, <laughs> with his voice piping in, I'll introduce our guest. But I was thinking, um, as I was kind of finishing up, have I read every word? No, but have I read a lot? Yes. Um, that some of the listeners know that another kind of detour in my life, which was really important is for years, I was the office manager of a research project about um, an African-American theologian, first African-American theologian to meet Gandhi. His name was Howard Thurman. I was privileged to work with, uh, it, makes, it made me think of you, Gene, and I'll introduce you fully, um, because I was able to work with a Christopher Lash student, and Christopher Lash is big in your work. Her name was Catherine Tumber, who amongst other books. Yeah, I know. I kind of know Catherine. I met yeah. her. Yeah. yeah, when I was reading your work, I see, you know, obviously, People who read Lash have a lot in common. She wrote a great book called Small, Gritty, and Green about cities like around where Michael and I live. We could repurpose, you know, Rochester, the cities around the Great Lakes. There's going to be a population migration here. So we have a steady climate, even though it's not sunny all the time. The Great Lakes provide that. But uh, at that same project, I worked with another scholar, really eccentric guy. His name was Peter Eisenstadt. And um it's, most of his work was in African-American history and culture. But one time he threw me these papers that he wrote early in his career, because I think he was an economic historian. And he said, you might find these interesting, but he thought they were stupid. But one was on the mythology of the um, the founding of Wall Street. And uh, they have their own mythos that involves a buttonwood tree. And his paper said, like, almost everything they say about Wall Street and this kind of founding story is just made up. 
But nonetheless, there's a there's an original Garden of Eden there. And then he had another paper on uh, Wall Street and how um, not alchemical, but like the mythological and numerological use of numbers, like seven year cycles. He could prove that so much prognostication was based on, you know, um, myth making and so forth. I was just thinking of that because I thought of Christopher Lash and Catherine, some overlap between your work and this friend of mine who in his eccentric way got to the religious nature of Wall Street. And uh, some some of our guests might have guessed. Yep. Uh, I'm speaking of our guest this morning, Eugene McCarraher, Dr. Eugene McCarraher. He's a professor at Villanova, author of Christian Critics, Religion and the Impasse in Modern American Social Thought, uh, contributes regularly to Commonweal Hedgehog Review in Raritan. Uh-huh. And uh, Catherine, my friend, contributes to Hedgehog in Raritan a lot and also writes for Descent in the Nation. He's a professor of humanities and history at Villanova University. And what a beautiful cover, too. What a big book. Beautiful cover. Amazing reviews. Say more, Gene. Shows it myself. <laughs> That's great. Great. <laughs> So yeah. the author of uh, The Enchantments of Mammon uh, is the title. So welcome, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. Welcome, Dr. Eugene McCarraher. Uh, glad to have you on this morning. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, you said you wanted to go in strong. Yes, I want to, I'm always wanting to go in strong. So so I, I, this is the second time I bought your book. The first time I bought it. Thank you. I, I loved it, but I, but I, but it's I, paying for my his kitchen son, remodel as we was my son's birthday. My son is really into what do they call it? You know, holistic investment, or whatever it's called. And, and he's really, he's a business, he's in business. And I said, but he's got a moral compass. I said, you gotta read this book. This is for you. So I gave it to him. So I bought another copy. And it was such pleasure to jump into it. Because not only, I mean, I was trying to go slow with this one, but it's you know, it's a six hundred page book, and because your prose is so beautiful and so it's so it well, is. you know, so it's enjoyable. It's an enjoyable read. And then I saw you were coming on the show, and I was like, I better hurry up because uh, I was enjoying, it, I was savoring it. But you start out with one of the primary things I'm interested in in my own work when it comes to, you know, economics and how we live. And this is the issue of enclosure. So, and I puzzle about this a lot. (laughs) I think about enclosure quite a bit. So let me ask you, Gene, what is with enclosure? How does that figure into this big project here? Well, it figures in a huge way um, because, well, one of the, first of all, let me step back and just say that one of the, one of the myths that I think a lot of people still have about capitalism is that it started off basically in cities uh, and it started off with industrialization. This is not true uh, because first of all, in order to get an industrial workforce, uh, you know, mobbed into these factories and, and, super factories eventually by the 19th century you know the question would be where are you going to get that workforce well it had to come from the countryside uh and so the enclosure of the commons um you know that part of the medieval manor that would have been open to everyone um that had to be enclosed it had to be uh, you had to kick off the serfs or the peasants who were there now, this is a long process uh, that takes place. It, you know, it, it begins roughly in the 
14th or 15th centuries. And by the 17th century in England, uh, it's not so much complete, but it's, it's, it's achieved a certain degree of momentum. Um, so you just, you know, you just kick off, kick the people off. And as mm -hmm. uh, Thomas More, you know, observes in Utopia, the sheep consume the men. Yep. Uh, so, you, know, you just put a lot of sheep on there so you can shear them and, you know, you can sell the, uh, the cloth on the, on the market and we're off to the races because, you know, where are this, these people going to go? Well, first, you know, they're first going to become cottage workers, which is like a kind of proto-capitalist way of, um, of manufacturing. And then by the 17th and 18th centuries, you start, um, a lot of these cap early capitalists began to get the idea that, you know, maybe we should mass these people in factories mm -hmm. uh, where we can basically steal their artisanal skills and start to mechanize everything. Uh, so I would say that enclosure, in fact, is, is not just something that happens with the land. It, it happens with any number of, of things like skill. Bingo. Yeah. Yep. I mean, one, one way to look at mechanization and, um, you know, what we today call automation. And I know this is something you want to talk to me about because that's, I'm writing a book about, about this subject, automation right now. Um, one way to think about mechanization and automation is basically the enclosure of skills, uh, the enclosure of artisanal skills, professional skills, and so on. Uh, and it's, it's still going on, really. Uh, you know, I think that to talk about enclosure is something that just sort of ended in the 18th century is, is completely wrong. Um, this kind of dispossession is still going on. Um, you know, I was reading yesterday, there's a piece in The Nation uh, about AI-produced art and, you know, I mean, what's basically going on here is you're stealing, they're literally stealing, you know, images from uh, both uh, live and dead artists and, and just funneling them through algorithms. And, you know, what is that but a form of enclosure? Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're, not, you're not only stealing aesthetic skill, you're actually stealing the product of that right. study. And or if you think in, in, in terms of uh, the 15 minute cities that are being proposed, right? That's nothing but enclosure, right? That's right. What's the definition of the 15 minute cities, Michael? I haven't heard of that. Well, it's it's a bigger deal in England and mm -hmm. I think some other places in Europe than it is here yet. But the idea is that you'll have to have a pass and you can't go more than 15 minutes from your house or you get you have to pay an extra tax or something like this. Wow. Right. And and the, and so it and it only it only can work by surveillance, right? Yeah. So it's the Chinese model. But yeah. it's certainly enclosure. And even out here where I live, so in rural old Michigan, you know, you see it, you see this the, the you know, and it, what I think it's E. P. Thompson points out, yeah, they did this. They it was all legal, <laughs> it's all criminal, right? Yeah, legal they, get that's a big concept the guys, for you, Gene. The guy's yeah. making the laws and the guys will benefit from it. As so often in history, the crime is what's legal. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, I mean, the, the but, <laughs> And it's so, central to your definition of capitalism, Gene, that, you know, that everything was, it's legal. It's legal, you know. Right. The workers well, are happens, free. Well, Go ahead. Same, Mike, you know, let me make a, I want to make a point, uh, you know, bouncing off of something that Michael just said, which is that uh, yet another way to think about closure is a form of surveillance. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I, I, you know, one of the, one of the conclusions at which I've arrived about automation is that it is at least as much about surveillance as it is about uh, cost cutting. Mm -hmm. 
you know, when you when when you go back, I talk about this in enchantments as well. I mean, when you go back to the first um, theorists of mechanization, who were also the first management specialists, right? I mean, people like Andrew Ewer wrote this book uh, entitled "Revealingly: Philosophy of Manufactures." Uh, you know, Ewer is very clear about this that the reason they're introducing what he calls the automaton is to control workers. Mm -hmm. He doesn't talk that much about uh, cutting costs or increasing productivity, even though that's clearly involved. His main interest is political. Right. It's not economic. He wants to make sure that these workers are doing what they're told. And, and the best way to do that is to basically make them adjuncts of the machine. Right. And I think that's what's going on with automation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what that's what happened over the course of the pandemic, right? The, oh the yeah, laptop yeah. class, yeah. and 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 I think uh, so. This is what you saw during an enclosure, say, especially in the 17th century, 18th century, is that people would be thrown off the land. I think of the Romantic poet John Clare in particular. People would be thrown off the land, unable to make a. a they could make a. They could. Uh, have a subsistence living by by working from the land, but they're thrown off the land. They're driven into the cities like like lemmings, and then what happens is they're demoralized. Mm -hmm. They're they have a inclination toward alcoholism and pro and prostitution out of desperation and despair, and that's that's part of the mechanism. Is that's how they become. You know, they can't erect they're destroyed human beings and yeah, then they're they part of the machine then capitalism is is i think in some ways um unique in this regard that you don't necessarily need to repress people you just demoralize them mm -hmm. uh, and then and then what you do is you supply them with this thing called consumer culture uh, mm -hmm. there's a there's a great uh, british historian gareth steadman jones uh you know who once called this new sort of um world of entertainment and sports and all this that was developing in Britain in the late 19th century, he calls it a culture of consolation uh, because he was, uh, you know, he was interested, you know, all, you know, Marxists obviously are going to be interested in this question. Well, why aren't the workers revolting, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. their, their lives are immiserated, uh, you know, they've lost so much hope. Why don't they just rise up? Well, if they're demoralized, they're not going to rise up. Exactly. You know, you just give them, uh, as you said, you give them alcohol, you give them access to prostitution. Legalized pot. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, you know, yeah. you, give them, uh, you give them, I don't know, dance halls, you give them. Mm -hmm. Gene, when, when you're, when you're, the main theory, you know, and the main kind of um, connecting thread of your work is that, you know, instead of uh, the disenchantment theory of Max Weber, and you can kind of explain that in a nutshell, because uh, I want to tie into what we're talking about too. You're saying that no, disenchantment is wrong. It's it's a misenchantment maybe, or you know, another enchantment based on money, you know, and capitalism. But when we're talking about enclosure, um, it made me think too of another subject that comes up for you, and it's a big one for me. But it's the notion, you know, that and again, if we're training people in a new religion, um, you know, it's it's changing. It's just changing the basic way people think and contracting their vision. But another big one that's seminal for yeah. you and everything you say is the notion of scarcity over surplus that we had to be. And, um, you know, that uh, 
mass schooling is a form of when you said it's like indoctrination control mm -hmm. you know whether it was john taylor gatto or others say or yeah. you know it's, it's right there in john dewey that um public schooling makes a, a learning look like a scarce commodity it's this thing that takes place in square rooms under fluorescent lighting uh, and all we know about the person standing in front of us is that they've been in this wacky environment longer than we have. They may be bright like Gene and Michael. Uh, they may not be. But what we definitely learn, the medium being the message, is that um, schooling is a scarce commodity. Education is a scarce commodity. And that's just another form of enclosure, isn't it? And it's one, you know, scarcity is a biggie versus surplus. But sometimes I hear Michael and I doing, we, we meet brilliant people like Eugene, and we're giving our listeners you know, the key concepts just to start shaking the whole thing up. But a, a big one for me is surplus and scarcity. Uh, can you kind of riff on that theme for a little bit, maybe while giving people the overarching kind of story of your book? So let me, yeah, let me talk a little bit about scarcity as a way into the, into the thesis um, of the book, or if maybe theses might be better. Yeah, scarcity is absolutely central to the capitalist worldview. Uh, absolutely. You know, because... Well, first of all, you know, let me let me just put it this way. So uh, whenever I teach freshmen and whenever, especially when I, I, I believe it or not, I get a lot of business students in my in my courses. And one of the questions or one of the things I will say to them right up front is that your first two days in Econ 101, you're not in economic, you're not in an economics class. You're in a philosophy class. You may not have realized this. Yeah. So they'll look at me, like, you know, what are you talking about? And I said, well, talk about, think about scarcity. When you're told that the world is a place of scarce resources, that is a metaphysical and ontological assertion. You may not realize that, but it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the same time, you're being told that human beings are essentially these rational utility maximizing monads. Big for you. We're going to come back to that. Yeah, that's the anthropology of human beings has yeah. that. There's, and I say to them, that is a form of what philosophers call anthropology, or it's yep. a, humanism. It's an account of what it means to be human. And so, you know, one of the things I try to, you know, um, convince them of uh, is, is, look, this is literally not true. Yeah. <laughs> it's I like, I like <laughs> your dramatic pause there, Gene. Uh, not true at all. It's crazy. It's not just that scarcity and this account of human beings is unedifying. It isn't true. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I asked them, you know, look at your own experience. Do you do you look at your friends and, uh, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, fathers, mothers? Do you look at people this way? Mm -hmm. No, you have to be taught to think this way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't I don't really think that this is how you all act. Um when you go out, when you leave Econ 101. I want to insert one thing very briefly. It's the, and it is one of a, a few soapboxes I have, but it's the notion working again with young people in the church. You're at Villanova. It's a Catholic institution. I know what takes place there, Gene, because it took place at Bonaventure. It takes place at uh, Marygrove is that the business school has that anthropology, competitive individualism, as you say, like, you know, utility maximization, but then the Catholic church outside of that go to theology and we have an anthropology called persons in communion. I want to put before our bishops until we can until we can unpack that uh, that disparity. And the Catholic Church starts. We give up this kind of schizophrenia mm -hmm. that we allow it in one place. That for there should be nobody coming back to our churches. There should be no because it, it's making people so confused. 
Mike? I would go one step farther. Uh, yeah. I would say abolish the business school. Yeah, uh, so would I. First of all, I think, you know, a lot of what's taught there is pernicious. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and secondly, when when did business become an academic discipline? I know. Is that you a know, joke? <laughs> you know, I, sometimes wonder, I sometimes wonder how it is that capitalism ever got off the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, before before they had business schools. I you know, I don't think uh I don't think Andrew Carnegie went to business school. I you gotta think... meet our friend Greedo Pepperata. He was uh, you know, he's a social scientist at the Gregorian. And uh, you guys would get along because he, he expresses astonishment. He knows for a fact, and he's, I think, one of the world's great economic minds, but he goes like, there's no surer way to ruin the brain than an economics class. He goes, it's, it's, you know, but it is, it's the craziest science out there. It's the craziest science out there. And it's not a science. Well, economic, well, as it's currently taught, I mean, if, if you're going to teach economics, it seems mm -hmm. to me that the discipline should properly be called political economy. Way to go. That's at least had something interesting to say how power, you know, how yeah. power is grabbed by playing with these things. Agreed. You know, one of the things I I mean, I don't I don't go into this so much in the book, but I mean, one of the one of the reasons that political economy became economics uh, was that you give you you give a certain kind of ideology, a sort of scientific veneer. Mm -hmm. so you, don't, you don't have to talk about classes. You don't have to talk about race. You don't have to right. talk about gender. You don't. You know, you don't have to talk about power. Yeah. You know, because you would have to then you would have to then um, concede that economic activity is also political yeah. at the same time. Well, and, and it's part of the humanities in a in a way, right? And yeah. it's interesting you mentioned that the this the scientificification of it, because if you know the oh, I do the history of literary criticism, for instance, or I'm sure it's the same in history about the middle of the 20th century, everybody wanted to be a scientist. So, so literary criticism became scientific. It's a kind of a joke. You know, right? I'm, thinking of that, I'm thinking of that line from W.H. Auden, uh, thou shalt not commit a social science. <laughs> <laughs> Where that's from. I, I think yeah. it's from some poem he read at maybe Phi Beta Kappa at Harvard or something. Yeah. I just remember just laughing out loud when I read it. I've proposed a moratorium on all interdisciplinary social sciences for at least 50 years, you know, like sociobiology. Just stop for a while. Let us catch don't up with you. I tell a lot of my friends down the hall about yeah. that. Uh, it's also yeah. kind of scandalous that Thomas Malthus was a political economist, right? Because okay. then people know the, the game is up. They can see that, like, when you actually put your cards on the table, what this whole dismal science is about. It's about making people superfluous and eventually about like reducing population and things like it's a very dirty thing. It is, it is nefarious. I mean, I, you know, when I first cracked open the um, essay on the principle of population, uh, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, I, I thought, wait a minute, this guy is a vicar. Yeah. Person, yeah. What? <laughs> it's, 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 um, yeah, it's awful. And, you know, that whole, that whole school of uh, evangelical British uh, economic thinking, and and that's one. Of, I think that's one of the brilliant things in your book that that you tie, and I, so many of those, allegedly, the Christians, you know, Christian. Uh, uh, what would you say? Uh, they, they tried to call it Christian political economy. Well, I yeah, didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. You even have, I even had a, uh, there's a historian, a, uh, I think his name is A.M.C. Waterman, who wrote a book, right, on Christian political economy, a pretty good one, in fact, 
Uh, and the only, okay, I got to get this off my chest. The only bad <laughs> book was written by a W.C. Waterman. Okay. And, yeah. and, you know, and uh, I thought, man, what did I ever do to you? Because I, I think his book's actually pretty good. But his, his contention was uh, that I did not understand a thing about economics. That's uh, Basically, I should go back and um, I guess- Read we would... Ludwig von Mises or something, right? Well, here, I'm going to bust out a quote from your book here. Oh, and you're talking about Yuri. Uh, the evangelical policy in Ireland during the Great Famine of the 1840s embodied its infernal counterpart. To evangelical economists, the Almighty's didactic malevolence was evident. The starvation that that racked the Irish people was the judgment of God on the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the Irish people. And in the words of Sir Charles Trevelyan, prominent in the words of Charles Trevelyan, prominent evangelical and chief administrator of the famine relief, it was the direct stroke of an all wise and all merciful providence. This is the director of, of relief. Of relief. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Don't help me anymore. <laughs> yeah, but think of the amount of damage that has been done by, quote unquote, the laws of supply and demand and the oh. idea of, again, reminding reminding the person at Walmart that he's free to work there, right? We look him in the eye and say, you're free to walk out to starvation. Um, yeah, the 19th century, 19th century artisans uh, had, a, had a much uh, clearer grasp of what was going on. I mean, they would often talk about wage slavery. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, uh, and, you know, when I mentioned this in classes, you know, there's a lot of head scratching, like, you know, well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, you're, you're free to uh, walk out of a job you don't like and all this. But I, I said, look, really, are you free? <laughs> you know, are you really free to, to quit a job? Uh, you know, basically what you're talking about with wage labor is basically choosing your master yeah. rather than your master choosing you. We, you know, we beat up on distributists a lot on this gene for not doing anything, the modern distributists, but like um, the insights of Belloc on wage slavery, they're, they're great. Belloc is great on this stuff, but, but it's the thing is self, uh, self-identified distributist doesn't do anything with it, you know, but the, um, well, it's hundred percent true. Thing. That's the curious thing I think about uh, Belloc and Chesterton uh, and, and the rest of them is that it, it's not clear to me, like sort of what, what political direction you know, they would have, they, they would have gone in. Though yeah. I suspect, I suspect that probably Belloc, I might be misinterpreting him here, so correct me if I'm wrong. My, my, my reading of one of his books, I'm trying to remember which one it was, maybe an essay on the restoration of property or something yeah. like that. Yeah. My impression was that he almost makes a kind of Leninist turn and says, look, we are going to have to get government involved in this. Yeah. And, right. You know, waking up, large concentrations of wealth uh and, and so on yeah he but, thinks he thinks you could use small government to you know think of like vermont you could have a small government say um that there is you're allowed one mcdonald's in burlington the second one we're going to tax a lot the third one we're going to tax out of existence but he still believed they could do that with a really kind of small government that was always there just kind of uh, breaking up property i haven't read belloc on this stuff or really thought about him for about 20 years, but I found it compelling when I read it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the the most interesting of Belloc's books to me, of course, is the servile state. Pretty interesting and relevant. Yeah. He, there are passages, long passages in that book where if you didn't know it was Belloc, you would think, is this like a Marxist account of, yeah, of right. capitalism? Yeah. You know, of, uh, you know, the displacement of of uh of peasants and uh the, the gathering of workers into into in, 
factories and so on. That's you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, as I was reading your book this week, um, and you see all these Christians kind of capitulate to the to the capitalist monster, right? They just they just get subsumed by it. And was it I don't know how long ago, six months ago, Mike, that we interviewed Lori Johnson? Yeah, on distributism. She was good, right? And one of the things she said that really kind of stuck with me, you know, we talk about why. Nobody does anything <laughs> with distributism except for read The Hobbit once a year. Um, that, 24 uh, hour reading of The Hobbit. Well, and you have to be in costume. That's, that's what distributism is now. <laughs> but but she said, you know, she said, well, the capitalist machine is just too powerful. You know, you couldn't do it because we're talking. So well, uh, in my CSA, for instance, which is kind of an attempt at a kind of distributism. Before, right. Before I, before I talk about disenchantment, let me just talk about the, the notion that the capitalist machine is too powerful. Um, I'm I'm not so sure anymore. Uh, you know, I I'm I'm I sometimes go back and forth between, yeah, the machine is too powerful, and you know, we all just might as well adopt some some kind of quietist you know political stance. But then I, I think at other moments that, you know, people like David Graeber and, uh, you know, Wolfgang Streck are right, that we, are, we seem to be in some kind of a transitional period where, you know, capitalism as we know it at least just, just isn't delivering the goods no. anymore. And sort of everybody knows, it. you know, I, I think neoliberalism has kind of passed as a, as a persuasive ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe not in Britain yet. I mean, you know, with uh, Rishi Sunak and the Tories, <laughs> I don't, I don't see that certainly regnant in the Republican Party, and even among uh, the Democrats, you know, I don't really see it as uh, all that convincing anymore. But well, the problem is, I think what it may be evolving into is something that you might call techno feudalism or managerial. Yeah, yeah where essentially, you know, you're going to have this kind of rentier economy mm -hmm. um, and, and you're just going to have a lot of low wage. I think know. you're hundred percent right on that, Gene. Yeah. No, they uh, say too, that capitalism, yeah. like once you drain a parasite, you know, once it drains the last bit of vitality out of everything, we're in the late stages right. of like vulture capitalism, and then it will necessarily morph, well, but it does, but it does get into, um, you know, the, when we think of the foe of, capitalism and automation and the dynamo you know the I, I still believe when we used i want you to speak to this in our correspondence you know the seminal the totally seminal nation of henry adams on the virgin and the dynamo because it's really the blueprint michael's you know i think um in michael's work uh, so file in, in sophia in exile and others the notion between like left and right let it go but um those forces lined up behind the dragon, the dynamo, the auton, you know, and those of the virgin. Um, so it's not just the virgin, the dynamo. Henry Adams could have seen the virgin falling before the dynamo. And I want you to speak to that. But also, I think, you know, the the powers inherent with the virgin, you know, water running downhill eventually doth penetrate every solid substance. You know, it finds a way, um, you know, a, a, a true ethic of nonviolence, a Christian nonviolence. And these things can make this dynamo stumble upon itself. But, you know, if you want to weave in, you know, your story of enchantment, but I knew in our correspondence, we were going to talk about the virgin and the dynamo because Henry Adams saw it all. If you even give a synopsis of what he saw and where. And 
Yeah, that's a nice way actually into the thesis. Yeah, uh, yep. actually, before that, even a, a critique of Max Weber. So, right, the Dynamo and the Virgin uh, is you know is probably one of the most famous uh, passages out of his um, autobiography, The Education of Henry Adams, and. Um, he starts off, uh, you know, in this what I'll call putatively secular way, right? He's looking at the dynamo and he's thinking, wow, you know, this is really powerful. And say what a dynamo was for him, right? Because it's a, such an evocative word. What were these machines he saw in the parish exposition? Like, you know, well, they were Westinghouse dynamos. I mean, they yeah, were generally yeah. basically okay, yeah, yeah. huge, huge machines, um, which, um, you know, basically made him feel puny, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, small. And, you know, one way to latch on to that with the disenchantment thesis is to say that, well, you know, most of us think of industrialization and capitalism and financialization and so on as utterly secular uh, phenomena, right? It's all about money. It's all about avarice. Uh, it's all about technological development and so on. And it doesn't seem to have any sort of a sacred or religious uh, dimension to it at all. Um, and this is basically the thesis uh, that, that was made famous by Max Weber. Uh, in, you know, he doesn't, he, he mentions it a little bit in the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, but uh, he, he amplified on it in, in other essays. And, and basically the idea is that the modern world is disenchanted. We don't, we don't attribute, uh, you know, the world or its existence or anything that we do, we don't attribute it to spiritual or religious forces anymore, right? We don't think that there are wood nymphs we don't think that uh, you know there are uh, all these animated sort of spirits and demons or goblins who inherit who inhabit nature in any way. We just think you know a tree is a tree is a tree. Uh, you know a dynamo is a dynamo is a dynamo. There's nothing religious about it. Um, and Adams in his essay basically he, he he's not mentioning Weber at all, but he he's saying no. There's something about this dynamo that calls upon what he calls, uh, you know, occult mechanisms. He actually calls the dynamo an occult mechanism because he seems to think that because the dynamo is such a powerful piece of technology, this to him is a sign that human beings are now beginning to worship what he calls infinite force, mm -hmm. right? And as much as human beings think they are actually beginning to control nature uh, with, with machines like the dynamo, Adam's fear is that in fact, human beings are themselves going to become the servants of machines. Mm -hmm. They're gonna become the servants of the system that the machine represents. And this to me is what I call misenchant. Mm -hmm. um, so in other words, capitalism in my, in my view, takes on many of the qualities of a religion. Uh, you know, you're going to have Bill Kavanaugh, uh, you know, on next week. This is what I, what he would call, I think, a migration of the holy. So, you know, agency and attributes that we once used to assign to God uh, or the gods, uh, we now basically assign to money. Money becomes, uh, in effect, the sort of the mana uh, or the the sacramental principle of capitalism, if you will. Um, you know, again, I'll refer back to some of my my freshman, you know, business students. They have this concept called effective demand, 
And uh, what effective demand is, I don't know if you know what this is. So I in economics, effective demand means if you have a desire or a want or a need, but you have no money with which to purchase the commodity that, that will satisfy this need, your need does not exist. Mm -hmm. Scarcity and enclosure. It, it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. It, as a matter of the marketplace, mm -hmm. it is, it's null and void, mm -hmm. right? And again, that is a metaphysical claim, yeah. right? And, but also what does that imply? Money brings things into existence, mm -hmm. right? Oh, once I have money and I can buy a bottle of water or I can buy, you know, a hamburger at McDonald's, you know, or yeah. something like that. Then, Don't you love it too when like in Africa, they'll say, economists will say, you know, people were making nothing. Now they're making $5 an hour in a factory as if their whole wonderful life with subsistence agriculture <laughs> was making nothing, right? They don't have a way to measure it. Yeah. Wait, wait where did they get the clothes and food to yeah, begin? Yeah, right, right, right. Oh, oh, yeah. I, and they can put the one on a graph, you know, and it's again, it's a form of enclosure. Only things that absolutely. are graphable. Yeah. And so money, uh, you know, I think actually in his way, Marx captured this quite beautifully. I mean, in, in his uh, notion of commodity fetishism and capital. Uh, where, you know, the value of things is wholly determined by the price that they will fetch uh, in the marketplace. And, and so, you know, I think in some ways Marx was a keener theologian than he realized. It's, it's just that, you know, he was so committed to producing a secular narrative of capitalism that, you know, he just kind of dismisses, uh, you know, this language and just calls it a lot of... Uh, metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. I mean, he's being sardonic there, but um, I actually think he's quite insightful mm -hmm. uh, in what he's saying about the, the nature of commodities um, and the nature of capitalism. So that's why, that's why I think that uh, Weber's just wrong uh, in, in, in the disenchantment thesis. Now there's a whole lot of reasons how this of course occurred, uh, and I do think that the Protestant Reformation is still key to this, mm -hmm. uh, but I uh, I don't think it's the only you know cause. And um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm one of these historians who thinks that you can see the seeds of this in in the late medieval period, uh, you know, on any on any number of levels. But um, so yeah, so if it's if it's not it's if it's not disenchantment, it's certainly misenchantment, right? Because basically, when people say that, you know, people in capitalist societies worship money, they're saying a lot more than they realize. I mean, they're yeah. not, they're not uh, uh, that's not a, just a metaphor. It's not just a sort of a hackneyed, banal metaphor. It's, yeah. it's a reality. You, you had something so nice to say about Marx there, too, and that yeah, I think your book is really, really excellent on showing kind of the wake or the wreckage in the wake of the fact that Marx was so successful on huge portions of the left that there was no room left for the the left, small L and capital L, that interests you so much and really interests Michael and I, like this uh, this romanticism piece, you know. And then also, what your book does, I think it's very much tied, you know, so that Marx crowded out any any notion, and that also I think you know when Marx crowded that out, nobody could see your thesis that again this is another religion, but the other piece was. Um, Oh, and just speak to that first, I guess. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think one way to think about the history of the left before the Bolshevik Revolution uh, is, is to see it, in fact, as a much more capacious 
and much more uh, imaginative uh, political sensibility and political imagination than we often think. I mean, you know, now when we hear the left, we think, oh, it must have it must have been basically Marxist. Yeah. Uh, in 1917 and that's i mean that's simply not true you know right. even, even if you're talking about the secular left right i mean you've got you've got all kinds of socialists you've got anarchists uh you know you've got you've got social democrats uh and then you've got this romantic streak you know represented by people like john ruskin and william morris uh and others who um morris i think liked to think he was a marxist i mean this is okay something that I talk about in the book, Morris, uh, he, he has this one essay um, where he's, he says, yeah, you know, I tried to, I kind of sort of tried to read yeah. that, but it kind of went over. I didn't my get head. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, I, 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 I admire the candor, uh, but, mm -hmm. but what it also says is that I think Morris at heart was more of a sort of Ruskinian uh, romantic than he was ever mm -hmm. marked. We're in your territory, Michael. Yeah, say more. No, absolutely, Martin. I think that's what he was, and I think, and and you point often in the book, and I have noticed it as well. I mean, part of that becomes a kind of nostalgia for the Middle Ages, right? And that's all over the place in Morris, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and also, but also, what you don't see, and this is what it's interesting. You talk about the left, and now when I think of the left now, I think of neocons. <laughs> you know, I think of pro-war. You know surveillance state that's what i think of now but I, that's not what i used to think of right i'm not sure there is years a ago when my wife no, there's I, not a meaningful left anymore that no, represents no. So here's an example yeah. of the romantic left so when my wife i married now we're married 31 years ago we were into organic farming and not vaccinating our kids and homeschooling and home births and people thought we were raging lefties and if you say that to somebody now they go wow you're a conservative huh <laughs> and, yeah. and you talked about that in the book with the the romantic right and the romantic left yeah which is an interesting it was that was actually a uh, really helpful way for me to think about this and and we see now um well, people we've interviewed on the show, like uh, John Michael Greer and Paul Kingsnorth, which I would say are kind of people of the romantic right in a way, yeah. right? So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, Gene, because it's a really fascinating topic. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the way that I think about the left uh, has, has historically been um, a political imagination and political movements that try to put some sort of democratic controls on property uh, and, and property accumulation. Mm -hmm. um, so I do see an, a kind of inherent uh, conflict and antagonism. But you're infringing on people's right, their freedom to make other people starve there, Gene. So uh... I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is is thwart that right? Yes, yeah, that yeah, yeah. liberty. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that there is a fundamental antagonism between democracy and certainly capitalist forms of property. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is that I think a lot of the left was aware of this uh, until maybe the 1960s or 70s. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think what happens in the 60s uh, with the left, certainly the American left, is that they become less interested in issues of exploitation. Uh, and redistribution, and they become more interested in questions about um, 
identity. They become more interested in issues uh, about, you know, it becomes a, a more sort of psychoanalytic left, right? I mean, you see, this is why figures like Herbert Marcuse, I, you know, I think become so significant. Um, and it's why a lot of the left, uh, certainly, you know, surrounding Jacobin magazine are all enthusiastic about automation. Mm -hmm. You've now, you it's know, super now, important, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now got people. But also, it's also about power, right? They became more interested in, in accumulating power where that was not the accumulating thing. power. And, and, but also I think what they, and I think this is really key. The left lost its links with the labor um, because they, they became less and less interested in labor. So you've got, what you have now is a left that doesn't, that seems to think this way. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, people like Aaron Bastani, who's coined this phrase, fully automated luxury communism. Uh, you know, he, he goes on, he goes on in that book by the same title about how wonderful Elon Musk is. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're a Marxist, or at least you're a self-proclaimed Marxist. You know, you're you're not supposed to be praising Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. so, though, if I I'll, I'll go back on uh, to on that to that in a moment because I think there's a sense in which Marx does in fact set this up uh, by by praising the progressivism of capital uh, and, and so on. And so, what I think is going on with a lot of sectors of the left these days is that they've essentially they're essentially thinking this way. We're going to offload our political imagination to Silicon Valley. We're going to let Musk and Zuckerberg and Gates and all of these Silicon Valley tech bros uh, create the technology of abundance, which they think is going to create socialism and, and then communism. And then we're just going to somehow take it over. Yeah. Yep. As though, as, you know, as though, number one, how are you going to do this without a labor movement? How are you going to do this without a mass movement? But also, isn't it the case that technology under capitalism is precisely designed to enhance the power of capital? So therefore, yeah. you're going to mm -hmm. take over a structure. No, you said it well. Yep. yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let me get this straight. Right. You're going to take over a structure, a, a, an institutional and technological edifice, which is designed for the purpose of exploitation. And you're going to somehow make it liberating. Yeah. Well, and and plus the other the other part of that with automation, and we've heard this quite a bit. I mean, what's his name? Noah Yuval Harari, right? <laughs> we don't need so many people, right? That's what that's where they're. Yeah. So, so which people did you have in mind of getting rid of? <laughs> well, yeah, Harari is a perfect example, and it brings us back to enchantment and religion. Mm -hmm. Because you know Harari is uh, one of these guys who's into transhumanism, right? And, uh, in the talk about talk about enchantment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These um, like the first um, the first chapter of the book I'm working on is entitled "The Mega Machine and the Virgin." I mean, it's a it's a hmm. an Lewis Mumford meets Henry uh, Adams meets yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I trace uh, there's a there's sort of a history I trace there, but but it ends up with people like Ray Kurzweil. Uh, yep. and, and Harari, who are talking about, you know, immortality through machinic transformation of, of yeah, the human. Right. Um, and I mean, I think this is insane. You know, I, I think, and I think it will never happen. But to me, what's interesting is the desire. Mm -hmm. You know, why, 
Why would you want to do this? And this is where I think, I think this is what is connecting the, the, the two books, uh, Enchantments and the one I'm working on now. I do think that this desire for transhumanism stems from a desire to be godlike. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that's bad. Wanting to be godlike, it seems to me, is, uh, you know, I think it's endemic to our nature. It's a but form of theosis the applied accurately. Yeah. Here's the catch. Mm -hmm. If you want to be godlike, everything then turns on what you think God is like. Mm -hmm. If Right? I mean, if you think that God is essentially about power and sovereignty and autonomy and will and, and agency, you're going to end up with transhumanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is this is the logic of the mega machine. This is yep. this is this is I think the logic of of, uh, of of capital. If you think that God is love, well, I think you're going to end up in a different place with your the way you think about technology, the way you think about um, what it means to be human, and and so on. Yeah. So, part of the story that I'm tracing in the book on automation uh, is in fact the story of how we think about God. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know if you caught this, but just this week, Harari came out with some ludicrous statement about having Chat GPT rewrite the Bible. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'd just be needlessly provocative there to distract. To make you it know? more accurate or something. Yeah. I can't remember the term we use. But <laughs> don't, don't you think, like, both of you, that, you know, we have, let's, for a moment, <clears throat> I'm just thinking out loud, we have, let's say, the Enlightenment prior to that, Romanticism. Or no, I mean the Enlightenment, Romanticism, and then you have postmodernism. But the um, and this comes up; it's implied in your book, Gene, and I think it's stated directly: is that we have we have people who, in one sense, are postmodernists, right, in the transhumanist way, in some of the gender stuff, the excesses, but in this automation piece, they're just pure creatures of the Enlightenment, and that what Owen Barfield called Romanticism comes of age would be in Mike Martin's lexicon; it would be a poetic metaphysics. You know, but the people who, you know, in order to get some progress in this conversation, we have to keep on calling out people who kind of pose as postmodernists, yet in their love of automation are nothing more than uh, just enlightenment rationalists, right? With all the problems that has of trading nature as a machine of what we've done and that it makes them, you know, like Marx, his, his colonization of the whole left, you know, that it allowed romanticism to be kind of, you know, strangled in the cradle. Um, but that mm -hmm. subterranean theme needs to come out, and it's a true postmodernism or romanticism that has us less talking less about transhumanism, but just about how to transform the planet by create, you know, creative engagement with it. I see you, Gene. Yeah, I totally agree with your point about yeah. uh, these these uh, enthusiasts for automation and for transhumanism being pure children of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and they're and they're children of the Enlightenment. In, in more than the sense that they want to uh, control human beings through machines. They think human beings are machines already. They do, they still do. Yeah. This, is a, this is a point that, uh, you know, Mumford in, uh, what was it, Technics and Civilization makes this point, and I think it's a brilliant one. In, or, in order for you to mechanize everything, you have to first think that human beings are themselves machines. Right. And that that is what, for example, a guy like the Baron de Condor say, you know, writes in this essay on human progress, which I, I talk about in this automation book. This guy mathematizes everything. Right. Everything is data. 
everything mm -hmm. is machinery. Uh, now, you know, Condorcet's not the first guy to, to say this, of course, right? I mean, Thomas Hobbes famously opens the Leviathan by, by comparing human beings and their limbs to a spring, mm -hmm. to a mechanism, right? I mean, they call it the mechanical philosophy for a reason. And so what, so yeah, I, I completely agree. But I, but I think it's important to stress that these people already think of human beings as basically sort of incompetent machines. I mean, there's, right. there's, one, of these, uh, there's one of these uh, uh, transhumanists, Elise Bowen, I think her name is, who basically says the human beings are nothing but really uh, meat sacks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what she says. That, that's yeah. long, that's, yeah. And, but, and I think you see that also in, uh, in you know, the kind of trans, transsexual debates we have now, transgender debates, <clears throat> is that the, the underlying assumption is that it's just a matter of changing parts, like, like you're retrofitting a, a, a car you bought, right? With, then it's going to be become a different something different, which, which is you know, that and this is Mary Harrington, right? This is she's talked a lot about that how the the transhumanist movement really started with the introduction of the pill in the '60s because it changed what uh, being human was. It changed it you know it was the first time where medication was introduced to not to fix something that was working the right way. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I, I guess I would differ with that a bit, but uh, in, in terms of both history and, and maybe, um, yeah, maybe philosophical orientation. But I mean, I take the point that that, in other words, the the mechanical model of the human being is one that I think goes back a long, long, long way. And um, transhumanism becomes, in effect, the 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 zenith. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, again, I think this is something that is that is pushed by a certain number of capitalist interests um, who may, you know, who may not think in these terms about, you know, mechanization and, and transhumanism, but they certainly look to make a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, it becomes uh, a subscription service, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Now, in a, you know, we've talked about how one of the great sins, you know, when you, uh, I liked your you were animated, Gene, when we were talking about um, economics and, uh, you know, that we are utility maximizing animals, you know, when it's just a lie. So we, you know, we've discussed how living things, we'd say human beings are being equated with uh, machines, but another, what I believe, central ontological lie, and tell us how it comes up in your thinking, you know, for you, Shakespeare's phrase, you know, you think your ducats sit in the bank and breed like rabbits, or, um, but it's usury, right? The, the sin, the sin that something um inert just a unit of measurement like inches becomes seen as something that is living seemed to really raise dante's ire for one when he looked at it and shakespeare saw it through and through um you know and we're talking about definitions of capitalism or where it began um our friend again guido preparata gotta bring you two together because yeah. we you know a lot of people like the distributors they kind of rail on usury or they say um, we have those people who say it's charging excessive interest and so forth. Um, Preparata, I was at a conference with him in Italy. He and his band of Italian anarchists, they're working on what he would call the central insight, maybe in the last 500 years, that comes from an economist, Silvio Gassel. You know, the Germany, you know, that was a funny period. But uh, one of the side effects of World War I and World War II 
is talk about romanticism being strangled in the cradle. So many things were strangled in the cradle. You know, that was the place of all great classical music. So much of culture it was Goethe, Schiller. But um, of all of those, specifically in the interwar years, Silvio Gassel came up with the notion he saw that, you know, money has to be perishable like everything else, which gets this whole thing. So perishable currency, our friend Guido Preparato would say, um, is, you know, the seminal idea. He, uh, there's a guy, if you Google that title on YouTube, I'll just never forget Preparato's smile when uh, there's some old, maybe evangelical preacher who's one of the few people to read Gassel. And um, he, uh, he's equating Gassel himself with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I told Guido, yeah, and I told Guido about this, and Guido just thinking about the power, the power of the theory, you know, and the idea that he, Preparato says, I can't believe I hadn't thought of it. Preparato would say, he just kind of nods and say that the significance of that is possibly the hinge moment to get us out of this impasse. On the other hand, let's just talk about usury, Gene. You know, where does that factor into your thesis of the power it holds in society? When we talk about how long capitalism can hang on, is it simply how much the usurious interest can drain more and more? Aren't we in the late stage of uh, everything is financialized, right? Usury doesn't play uh, per se. I mean, it doesn't play a big role in enchantments. Um, Though what I would say about usury or or just about the whole notion of interest rates, you know, in general, is that it it hides the mechanization or or it hides the mechanics of exploitation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you get get people to believe that, you know, they're, oh, interest rates are just kind of like natural forces, right? uh they uh money money breeds money no money doesn't breed money money what does not breed money what, hap- what happens is the money gets invested uh in a factory or an office you know or, or, or something else and it's the exploitation of workers <laughs> that creates the profits yeah and 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 you know interest rates i mean uh you know Interest rates are just a way for you know finance capital uh, to to extract something from the production process. It's uh, you know I I sometimes want to say to some of my finance majors here at Villanova, you know, you guys literally don't make anything but money. Right. That's, that's what you're trained to do. They need to get that. Yeah. Make money. Think about uh-huh. that. The only thing you do is make money. You don't, you don't make tables, you don't make chairs, you don't make music, you don't make art, you don't make, you make money. Yeah. I saw, I saw a guy on, I forget what channel, I don't know the guy's name, but uh, I, I even forget where I was, but I must've been sitting in a lobby and it was like uh, maybe the, uh, the NBC version of the finance station, but it was, it was a finance, it was a financier and a uh, financier. And he was saying, yeah, we run everything. He knows it's a problem because like literally everything is driven by us right now. You know, the key scene in the film Wall Street is not the one where Michael Douglas says greed is good. That's Uh the most important scene is one in his office with Charlie Sheen. Right. Charlie Sheen has just found out that uh, Michael Douglas is about to wreck the company that Charlie Sheen's father works for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of this is coming back, right? Martin Sheen, see, yeah, yeah, like an airplane factory, I think, or something like this. And uh, he's, you know, he charges into the office and says, you know, you you lied to me, you know, and all this. And Michael Douglas kind of, you know, says to him, <laughs> you know, like, what are you a nitwit? <laughs> 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 you 
you know, why, why are you trying to, why are you trying to wreck this company? And he says, because it's wreckable. Mm-hmm. And he, because and he, it's wreckable. And then yep. he says, mm-hmm. and then he has this disquisition where he says, look at this painting on the wall. I bought this thing for $60,000 10 years ago. If I sell it now, I could sell it for 600,000. All you do is change the perception. That's what a lot of finance is about. Mm-hmm. It's changing the perception, right? It's, it's yeah, capital, he says, yeah, it's capitalism at its finest. Yeah. And Let's talk a little bit about hopes coming from your book. You know, you mentioned uh, names, I'll, I'm embarrassed, but I, I hadn't heard of them, you know, Vita Dutton, Scudder, a book, White, and so forth. Um, who, who? I think there's a lot of names when I spend more time with your book that I have to kind of unearth and spend time with. Um, you know, uh, where are you seeing signs of hope? You know, where where do you think we need to go from here? You're working on your book on automation, you know, to try and uh, to make it a little more practical. Where are you currently standing? Yeah. So I, I guess I'm about halfway through the book right now. It's supposed to be a short book. Uh, believe me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not I'm not going to devote 20 years of my life to this like like I did to uh, enchantments. Um, yeah, where where am I with this with hope? So I think one one site of hope, uh, and it's I mean it's a thin one at this point, but but it does seem to be showing signs of stirring, is as I you know referred to earlier the labor movement. I don't see how you're going to get any kind of a handle on automation, uh, or or this acceleration of technological development until you have a revitalized labor movement, mm-hmm. and it has to be a labor movement that work that wants more than just higher wages and better benefits. Mm -hmm. It has to be a labor movement that wants the whole thing. It it has to be a labor movement that wants total control of the workplace. We're the ones who are gonna design the technology. We're the ones Mm -hmm. who are going to uh, decide the pace of our work, um, the nature of our work, its purposes, uh, and so on. So basically, I kind of sort of want a revival of, I guess, what you know, in one tradition, it might be guild socialism. Uh, yeah, sure. It might have been something like uh, even the Wobblies, uh, you know, were like this: the industrial workers of the world. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the one of the one of the one of the key turns that took place in the labor movement was their adoption of Samuel Gomper's uh, vision when he was asked what what workers want. They just said more. Mm-hmm. What? Right. Well, well, I think. Do you and see I think, stirrings of that labor movement, or go ahead, Michael? Well, I yeah. think. No, I think. Well, what we part of what I've been seeing, anyway, with uh, the rush for automation that you see from the archons from the World Economic Forum and these people, is they see that coming, and they don't want it to happen, right? So they're trying to head it off at the pass, yeah. right? You'll you'll only right. yeah. be happy I mean, talk about enclosure, right? Which I actually interesting with, you know, that 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 phrase became popular during the pandemic, but that article came out in 2016 because I've been using it with with freshmen or older students ever since then. And (laughs) and it became much more relevant during the pandemic. But that's a long time plan. Right. Was this an article Gene wrote? No, 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 no. This is a this was a put out. I can't remember her name. She was a. She's a. I think she's a Danish politician, maybe from the Netherlands. And she, the World Economic Forum, had it on their website. Oh, I see. Gotcha. The whole idea of you'll own nothing and be happy. Right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And 
what happened it, it, so the first year of the pandemic I, I was I would just link that 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 story or that blog post from the World Economic Forum and give it to the students and the students complaining that the link's broken well they took it down yeah. but you can still find it on Forbes on the Forbes website because it was published there yeah, the, the World Economic Forum types and the Silicon Valley Titans uh, and, and so on, I do think, suspect that they, they've got to do something. You know, I think this is why people like Zuckerberg and Musk have sort of faintly floated the idea that they are in favor of a universal basic income, because they realize that um, wages are shockingly low, and yet they have an interest in keeping them low. So what mm -hmm. are we going to do to have everybody buy our, our, our products? Well, I guess we're going to have to literally throw money at them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're going to have to drop it from helicopters and shoot it out of bazookas because, you know, the system is just not going to be able to generate enough uh, income for consumption. So, I mean, that's, that's one way that they'll have to, they'll try to avert, uh, you know, some kind of social unrest, which might well issue in, um, political movements and population and, reduction figures into that in their in their project right which is one of the things they're always talking about in the great reset right you know we have too many people okay which you know well, which people true. would you like to get rid of <laughs> give yeah, us a list I'd like to volunteer uh, you know yeah. I mean, that's I, what I've had I've had that I hear this you know, I just think okay, I have, I have nine kids good. and so people yeah. you know I over over my my career in academia oh, how could you do that to the environment well it was kind of fun but uh that was fun at the time but they would say well, i really think we you know i hear this in the in the faculty lounge we have too many people on the planet and i would say okay who would you like to leave why don't you volunteer <laughs> uh yeah so, but yeah. but he, but gene go, go. I, as mike was was saying you know giving hope and i think i I love the way you begin the book and the way you end it with Gerard Manley Hopkins, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the world, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. So, why, why, do you, why did you start and end with that? Well, because I think that that poem uh, is is an assertion of sacramentality. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's it's a beautiful way to say that the world is a sacramental place. Mm -hmm. and that, um, God is in, in, is in a sense everywhere, uh, you know, permeating creation, uh, you know, not in a sort of pantheistic way, but, um, you know, matter, the material world is capable of conveying uh, the love and the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And what I think, what I think happens with capitalism is that basically um, capitalism is pr becomes predatory on that. You know, it's, it's precisely our desire for satisfying um relationship with the material world that capitalism just kind of gets its claws into and and won't let go you know i i this is one of the reasons i say early in the introduction and, and try to and i think try to exhibit this throughout the books is to say that look i mean i'm 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 tired of hearing two words materialism and consumerism um you know materialism Okay, I get it. You know, uh, you know, a sort of uh, slavish devotion to to the acquisition of things and the acquisition of money. But look, the material world is a great place. You know, right, right, right. flesh <laughs> yeah. is good. Mm -hmm. You know, it uh, it's it's the source of our delight, our joy, our pleasure. You know, why stop bashing matter? Would you? 
you know, um, consumerism I have a problem with because I think, as I say in the book, I think consumerism has become a way of not talking about capitalism. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's 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 easy for I think certain kinds of moralists, right, to right. wag fingers at people. That's at Christmas, right? It's just it's it's become so so it's tired. Of, yeah, at yeah, yeah, Christmas, just a yeah. Yeah, it's a way of saying, look, you know, you naughty people who you know who mm-hmm. drive to the mall and you know you stuff your cars with with presents and stuff and all that. And you know, I'm with John Ruskin. I mean, you know, I I think that you know stuff is good. <laughs> It's not, it's not, it's not. You just need better stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you want better stuff. That's, that's the key, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what what Morris was doing too, right? That's what the firm was. The distinction that Ruskin makes between wealth and what he calls ilf is, is I think one that has to be made central to what we now call economics. Why don't you talk about that a little bit so the audience gets what you're talking about? So the way we judge an economy uh, you know, politicians do this, economists do it, the average person does it for that matter, is to say that, well, we got 2.3% uh, bigger economy this year than last year. Wow, that we're doing well. Okay. In other words, it's a strictly quantitative uh, measure of how well we're doing economically. Now, there are any number of problems with this. I mean, you know, first of all, people who think that, you know, 2.1 increase is big. Uh, well, folks, I can tell you that in the 60s, you had five and 6% growth rates. So don't think that, you know, yeah. you're doing something special here. But but a more, I think a more, uh, a, a deeper critique of this is, is to do the one that Ruskin asked, which is, yeah, okay, you, so you increased your economy by 2.3%. So what, what, what's in that economy? Did you make more cigarettes? Did you make more nuclear reactors? Did you make more, uh, I don't know, processed food? Mm-hmm. Or did you make more vegetables? Did you make more fruit? Did you make more good wine? Did you make, you know, clothes that are, you know, uh, keep you warm and are attractive looking, right? I mean, that's the measure. And also what he says about wealth is, is I think, important as opposed to ill, which is wealth is as much about the person making the thing as it is about the thing. Interesting. He, call, he calls it the wealth. He calls the possession of the valuable by the valiant. So in other words, it's not just about the valuable stuff. It's about the person who makes it. If So the person who makes it has to be a good person in the making, as well as, you know, making a good thing. And this is something that I think economics just, com- as again, as we, as we, uh, conceptualize it now completely overlooks it is irrelevant to economics what kind of a person is created through the process of say you know mass production mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that person can be alienated that person can be you know de-skilled uh you know whatever as long as more yeah. widgets get get punched out hey we're all good right yeah. As long as as long as 2.3% more widgets were made last year, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. either what those widgets consist of or what the widget maker is like Mm -hmm. uh, in the process. That's utterly irrelevant in in um, in what they're what they're taught in business school. Right. And and I love that. And throughout the book, you you 
you draw attention to the arts and crafts movements, both both here in the United States and in Britain, and not far from where I used to live, it's a little maybe an hour and a half from where I live now, is uh, the Cranbrook. Um, Cranbrook I've room, never heard of it. Christchurch Cranbrook, and that community. I don't. I can't remember who who was it founded it, but they have a little museum, and it's basically uh, a shrine to William Morris. Whoever founded that was really deeply into the arts and crafts movement. And the church they have there is gorgeous. It's an uh, mm. Episcopalian church. And it's just steeped in that kind of William Morris aesthetic about making crafts that that serve people rather than serve, you know, the economy. There are two. Uh, well, I guess one is still around. There are two examples of the arts and crafts movement near where I live. There was one uh, called the Rose Valley experiment, which is in uh, was in Media, which is maybe about seven miles from here, maybe mm -hmm. five miles from here. And there's another one in Delaware called the Arden Theater, which was a combination of um, the arts and crafts movement and the single tax movement uh, from the uh, the 1880s and Henry George. And all that, who I guess in some ways was kind of a proto distributist. Yeah, in one sense, you see, you read about him in those terms a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So, um, yeah, the arts and crafts movement, I think, is is for me is paradigmatic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not one of these people who thinks that you have to completely destroy like mass production. I mean, I I, I do think that there, in, in many ways, it's it it can produce some real goods. Yeah. But, but for me, the principle. The principle of artis of artisanship, as you know, as in control over the means of production by the worker or workers, is, mm -hmm. is that's what's really central to me to arts and crafts. Yeah. And Seems I do to think, me. So, oh, go ahead. I do think that there are ways that you can you can combine certain virtues of, of craftsmanship with virtues of uh, from um, machine production. I mean, a whole. Mm -hmm. A whole group of people thought you could do this. Mumford was one. Uh, another one who I think is interesting was the anarchist Murray Bookchin. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, would often write about this. It's also it's a real also, tricky one, right? Yeah, go ahead. It's also curious to me that that often the the those secular leftists who were romantics, capital R, tended to be anarchists, or or they tended to be some sort of very uh, what used to be called libertarian socialism, like Marx. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, Marx. You know anybody who reads news from nowhere cannot be convinced that Marx was a, that Morris was a Marxist. Uh huh. You know I I don't see how people can still like E. P. Thompson even did this. Yeah. <laughs> as as guy, a guy as brilliant as E. P. Thompson still is trying to force Morris uh, into that 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 square peg into a round. It doesn't hole. work. That's too funny. Work. Yeah. E. P. Yeah. Thompson. He also he also. Uh, he really stumbled upon the rock of the existence of a guy named William Blake. You know, his, he had to find his lineage, a pure materialist. Mm -hmm. Couldn't take yeah. somebody who was sui generis, right? This so. is the thing I found. Uh, one of the things I found when doing the research for this book was that, you know, guys like Thompson, guys like Christopher Hill, mm -hmm. you know, even who I think is just one of the most brilliant historians who ever wrote. Yeah. They're constantly trying to say that figures like Winstan Gerard Winstanley, yeah. you know, people, people like William Blake, well, they're they're really proto-Marxists. Right. I know it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you get past all that religious nonsense, you know, about about um, about God and spirits and all that, they were they were really doing a kind of proto-materialist analysis. Yeah. You just want to so say, funny. Are you kidding me? 
That's <laughs> true. It's so true. Well, on, I mean, on page on page one thirty eight, Gene, you say I think it's one thirty eight. Power, you know, and it's a huge theme today. You know, power seems to have outgrown its servitude. Uh, the sorcery had overwhelmed the sorcerer. You were, you were just saying that, you know, maybe some anarchists, you know, maybe some anarchists saw a way to get that genie back in the bottle. You know, an economist who's not uh, mentioned in your book, but he, he also gives us another way of seeing the same thing. It's called Polanyi, right? You know, is that the market right. for Polanyi was something that happened, again, like outside in the cathedral square for from 12 till three on one day a week. It was a tool and they could keep the genie in the bottle. Then everything, it, it blows out. And then, you know, everything is seen in terms of market relations. Your your index has Eric Fromm in there, right? Of course, he sees love now reconceived in market relations. But the notion that we can get the genie in the bottle is still kind of a tricky one for me. We have these people who try to get convivial tools and so forth. But I think, you know, going back to the Virgin and the Dynamo, when you mention the anarchists and when you distinguish between materialism and consumerism, we have mater, we have mother, we have the virgin, we have anarchism from the bottom up, matter. You know, this is where I guess I'm less sanguine that we can probably, in a way of theory or possibly, you know, labor organization, because um, this, again, uh, repeating for me, you know, a theme that comes up in a lot. This is the same dynamic when we're seeing when um, this Ian McIlchrist talks about you know, brain hemispheric stuff. In the left hemisphere, the dynamo gets control of the right. He goes, it's an apocalyptic time. So, you know, an apocalypse too is kind of a peeking behind the veil. I think, you know, from a re-engagement or sacramentality, Gerard Manley Hopkins, all this stuff starts to come full circle. If we can get people to look at real things, all of a sudden we could have, you know, I'm writing from the Burnt Over District or speaking today from the Burnt Over District. You know, we, we have to pray for like a renewed, imagination, people's engagement with matter, matter is good, the divine feminine, the virgin, and then all these things where they're diluted through scarcity and enclosure. They're seeing money as a living thing when it's dead. They're seeing um, dead things like economics as living. Um, you know, we need, we definitely need a third, fourth, or fifth grade awakening here. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it was when you, you went so eloquently on materialism, fine. I feel the same way. But those anarchists, the few people who could get control of the tools, this is where I think the, the rubber meets the road. You know, can the can the right brain exert, you know, for the master and the emissary, once the feminine, holistic, um, it's supposed to send out the left brain to do something. Like I pick up a tool, the pen, and then I can put it down. But all of a sudden, when the pen gets above us and we pray to it, this is really apocalyptic stuff. But, uh, you know, it's sacramentality again, getting people to engage with the real. And I think once we start engaging with the real, that can spread like a contagion, because that's also called the kingdom of God, you know, this worldly understanding of heaven. And the kingdom of God in the Gospels spreads like a contagion when we listen to the way Jesus, you know, talk about it, you know. I'm I'm not that familiar with um, Ian McGilchrist's work, so I I, yeah. I won't speak to that. I mean, but, yeah. I, but I will speak to... Um, especially the notion about the way we think about the kingdom of heaven, uh, the way we think theologically. Uh, you know, look, I was, I, I was brought up uh, as a sort of, what, pre-Vatican II Catholic, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, I was, I was growing up in the, in the, like, Vatican II era, right, like mid-60s, you know, and all that. And so, you know, I still tend to think of the kingdom of heaven as, you know, something like up there. I mean, right, still, right. This is how I think about it, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> In other words, I don't, I don't think about it in terms of materiality, but, you know, 
the more the more I've thought about it, the more I'm thinking. Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of uh, David Bentley Hart lately. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, I I think you've had him on the this. Yes, we had him and Milbank. You contacted me over when we had yeah, Milbank yeah, on. Milbank. He's great on this. Yeah. And um, I think David's day David's way of thinking about this is very. Uh, is very good. I mean, you know, the, the early Christians were communists. I mean, let's just call them what they were. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think I think there have been any number of just absolutely laughable exegetical and homiletical strategies to try to get us to not see what the text clearly says. I agree. You know, I mean, you know, especially during the Cold War. Now, you know, the, that word communist is an interesting one because somebody like Ruskin uses it, but he doesn't mean anything like what uh, Marx means by it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, we have to have, I think, some kind of a discussion about what, what it means to be a communist. What do we mean by the commons, which therefore, uh, you know, influences what we think about enclosure because you mm -hmm. can't have enclosure without a commons first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do we, how do we think about this? Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, part of me wants to say that we should just boldly say that we're commies. Uh, one thing, one thing, I, I, the only thing that I, wise thing that I ever think came out of the mouth of Pete Buttigieg, uh, during the 2020 campaign was he, he, somebody asked him about, you know, the Republicans are calling you Democrats, all socialists. How do you respond to that? And he said, well, they're always going to call us socialists. So why don't you just uh -huh. say what, say what you think anyway. So, yeah, yeah. I think I think that actually reclaiming the the legacy of the commons and, and reclaiming uh, I think the commons I agree like the, the word communist that would be a tough sell for a while but insofar as it links to the commons I think Michael and I would agree wholeheartedly and again that's a that gets it's not tinny language it gets to a yearning because it's a poetic metaphysics some things that are both ours and mine that's why front porch republic plays on that same theme right a front porch is Technically, my neighbors a little bit, uh, but it's it's definitely mine. And um, it's you know Illich Ivan Illich compared it to hair on his skin. The bugs have some; they're allowed there a little bit, right? And <laughs> and yet it's but the hair this hair area is kind of a form of the commons. It's kind of private and socialist at the same time. And young people, that's a poetic metaphysics, and they're hungry for that. Communism seems enlightenment to them, right? It seems. Right like a system it seems like a machine the commons is the height of poetry it's the height of poetry well I, I think i think that's why the term communitarian might be a little bit more useful and, and which doesn't it sounds tinny to it me. doesn't have the, right but yeah. doesn't have the baggage that communist has. Yeah, but we have to be careful with these I mean, words because it's the right word like the commons everybody would kind of rally behind it go ahead but most Gee. people and that this is the thing is most people yeah. don't know about that that history no, true. That, that's true. an important history to know about Mm -hmm. right because it changes everything because we we we've grown up all of us you know through centuries of thinking thinking abnormality is normal we could grab the magazine common wheel <laughs> that you've written for a lot and make it more about the common wheel you know well that's what i mean i think that's what the editors now are trying to do i i know that oh really that's that's very hopeful my sense, my sense about Commonweal uh, over the last decade or so is that it has sort of gone, as we say, to the left. Yeah. In the sense that it is, it is talking more about uh, capitalism as a system, you know, mm. not not just, you know, abuses of the system or something like this, but no, the system itself is just rotten. Yeah. 
uh, and it and it we need to get rid of it somehow. Yeah, I'll have to start reading a little more because again, the title's right there, but it needs to reclaim something a little more than a and you know kind of a bland leftism. Yeah, Commonweal's name uh, derives from a journal that was edited in the 1890s by none other than William Morris. Oh, okay, yeah. When yeah. Uh, Michael yeah. Williams, uh, who was the founding editor of Commonweal, founded it in 1924, I think, mm -hmm. uh, he took, he stole, <laughs> yeah, he stole the, 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 the title from yeah. William Morris's periodical. Very good. Uh, can I say something about Carl Polanyi? Yeah. Uh, like you mentioned him earlier. Um, I like him. That book, I, I still think that The Great Transformation is an absolutely invaluable book. In, it has in, to be read, yeah. And it's what, almost like 80 years old? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, 1944. It's, I teach chapters from that, uh, from that book in, in various classes, and it, it, it is still astonishing uh, how, what he's able to grasp. Yeah. And uh, I think, know. again, for me, it, it helps young people see that like this, it, it kind of cuts between the left and the right, socialism and capitalism, too. And it puts it more in the Virgin, the dynamo, this great thing, the market, it was supposed to serve us. You know, and that's why I'm invoking your language, Gene, that, you know, that this uh, the, we're supposed to own this stuff. Now we become totally beholden to it. And that's yeah. why we like reading Eric Fromm. Um, but the notion that this thing called the market. Yeah. It's like you go, we see it when we go to Italy and somebody's haggling over the price of an orange, but it was always supposed to be a tool in our toolbox. And then somehow, you know, capitalism is kind of the escape from that market mm -hmm. to it just hovers over everything and an egregore, you know, and that's why I think the word apocalypse, maybe some people could just wake up to the egregore of the market and say, mm -hmm. it doesn't determine everything. Yeah, it's supposed to be fun, like a farmer's market. <laughs> Right. You know, all, look at Villanova and look at all of our campuses. Everybody now is seeing, you know, risk risk management as their way of relationships, right? Like, why would I get involved in this? How much can I get for the, every Eric Fromm was more right than he knew, you know? Yeah. And so that goes back to Carl Polanyi, you know, uh, more right than he knew. Yeah, I, I think, um, I guess in terms of my, my account of capitalism itself, and I guess where I might differ a little bit from the way John Milbank has been writing about this. Okay. John uh, seems to me to be taking a kind of finance focused um, account of where, of where capitalism goes haywire. Like, like, so in other words, it's, it's where the users get involved that everything mm -hmm. starts to go, you know, the road to perdition, right? Yeah. I guess in my I guess my historical account would be somewhat more Marxist in the sense that I think it's the very property system itself of capitalism that mm -hmm. that causes this need to constantly maximize profits and, and maximize production. I mean, certainly finance financiers once they get involved, yeah, everything yeah. blows up. But I think but I think that there's something inherent in the nature of capitalist property relations, yeah. which is which is something that I think. It needs to be stressed more that that I, th I think of capitalism more as a property system than as a market system. Right, in, right. In other words, um, markets have been around for from time immemorial, right? Of course. But 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 capitalist markets have not been, and they're mm -hmm. they're I think tied to the way that property right. is understood and, and practiced. So don't you think Milbank also gets wrong? Like again, Brexit had a lot of problems. There's no doubt. 
But yeah. the, this notion that like the larger entity is going to be the right entity. Again, I find that anti-divine feminine, anti-virgin, anti-matter, because it's well, so anti-anarchistic that the European Union holding that, like scale is an important thing. Scale, scale, scale. This yeah. uh, The other great author is a uh, uh, Leopold Kor. You know, he said there's no problem in the world. That's not a problem of bigness. But, you know, there's a huge part yeah. of our podcast that hangs on the divine feminine. And I find these these multinational entities like anti-divine feminine in the extreme well you know i think i think that it's possible okay so if if you take the 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 notion of subsidiarity you know seriously then what does that say i mean what it says is that you know x has to be dealt with at the appropriate scale for yes whatever it is now i think that that is compatible or can be compatible you know, to some degree with thinking about large scale institutions or large scale enterprises. Mm-hmm. If in fact X or whatever it is, is best is is best done through some kind of large scale thing. I mean, yeah. I, I do think that those things are 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 compatible. They're I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Right. But with control we're talking about automation and like surveillance, who's gonna police the policeman is the number one question. When you get like, so they see, you know, isn't it too convenient to look into my town of Hemlock and maybe see, uh, you know, some cop do something wrong, then you need the next entity, then you need, and then it's a surveillance state, you know? Well, I mean, for example, the the idea that, uh, I mean, who is it? Shoshana Zuboff has this idea in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. She says, mm-hmm. well, you know, what we need to do with, uh, fa- well, it's not Facebook now, it's Meta. What we need to do with Meta is we basically need to regulate it. No, we need to destroy it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that is Meta's whole business. We model. agree. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's like they say, it's not, it's, it's not a bug. It's a feature. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's surveillance is built into Meta. Right. Blow the Interesting. So twelve years ago, the New York <laughs> Times, before they, they became a, an, an arm of the state, they were they had quite a few articles you know really concerned about how many people from government from the fbi and other agencies were going to work for meta or for at the time it was facebook right and the york times was was really concerned about that now they're all in <laughs> well listen this is the point that I, i've made with some of my uh colleagues and it doesn't make me popular with them uh you know whenever whenever trump goes on about the deep state I say, okay, look, I can't stand Trump any more than you can, but please don't tell me there's not a deep state. A hundred percent right, Gene. A hundred percent right. Anybody who knows the history of the CIA, the FBI, anybody who knows anything about the way that the civil rights movement and the anti-war movements were surveilled, invigilated, uh, penetrated by things like COINTELPRO and and Mm -hmm. all this I mean, come on, people. I know. You know yeah. We <laughs> talked about the demise of political economy as a way of like ruining our ability to get a handle on these things. In a couple of weeks, we mentioned this Guido Preparata. He's inviting his friend. You'll love him, Gene. His name is Eric Wilson. But in Preparata's book, New Directions in Catholic Social and Political Thought, Eric Wilson. So, you know, what we need is a history of like the role of secret police in controlling people. It's just obvious. People don't write on that. The other one is Eric Wilson writes a lot on the role of political murder if you are trying to control people, right? That some people are 
Why did it end in the Renaissance with the Medicis, the people off other people in the name of power? Now you say, gosh, I think Kennedy might have been murdered. You're a conspiracy theorist. You know, Kefarad is the one who said conspiracy theorist is too important to be left to conspiracy. You don't even have to, you don't even have to go like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. direction to to know, for example, look, Fred Hampton of of, uh, the the Black Panthers was murdered by the FBI and and the FBI admitted it. Yeah. It's not... This isn't something that you have to be some wacko conspiracy theorist to believe. I mean, they, yeah. they admit it. Yeah. Uh, and, and so when when some of my colleagues, you know, go on about, oh, you know, isn't Robert Mueller wonderful? No, the guy's a cop. I can't believe this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we on the left were supposed to be suspicious of cops. Yeah. I thought we were supposed to be suspicious of of the FBI. Uh, yeah. And, the, yeah. And, and didn't didn't college campuses specialize once upon a time of like questioning the connection to academia and the military industrial complex. Right. Exactly. I, th- I, I, I think where have you people been? You know, <laughs> yeah. you all seem to be intelligent people. You all you some of them are historians who yeah. know stuff. And, and I just think you're going you're you're you don't. What was your anecdote last week, Michael, about that 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 young kid who divulged all those uh, military things? How quickly they found him, and we can't find you know anything about Jeffrey Epstein. Right? Yeah, you, know, the- you got that kid in ten minutes from. The, the <laughs> well, you talk about oh man. I mean, you talk about a conspiracy theory. I mean, I am one of these people who does actually think Epstein was helped along on his demise. Oh, I'm- oh yeah, I'm- me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm- yeah, I'll just put the it role out. of political murder in keeping up uh, regimes. You know, this is a more political economy. Role of like a political, uh, you know, the, these studies, uh, the role of uh, secret police in 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 surveillance and things like oh, that. Yeah. I can't believe we're not allowed to talk about them. <laughs> yeah. and, and then, then we have our our patriotism question. If we if we were suspicious <laughs> about the FBI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who's your favorite uh, political commentator? Oh, it's John Brennan. It's uh, all these people. Uh, Michael McFaul. It's yeah, amazing. These are heroes. Yeah. You yep. know, I, yeah, I remember when John Brennan, you know, was being praised. I was on, I used to be on this uh, sort of listserv years back mm-hmm. um, with a whole bunch of people. And uh, I don't think Bill Cavanaugh was one of them, but he might have been. Okay. And I, I remember when uh, people were praising John Brennan and I, and I, I interjected and I said, what? What are you doing praising this? <laughs> yeah. you know, he's, he's terrible, right? Same thing you said about Trump in the deep state. Sometimes people ask me about Trump, and I'll say, like, he had the right enemies. They're like, what, what, what do you even mean? That's a very disturbing question. That, like, he had the right enemies. By and large, a lot of his enemies were bad people. And that seems to make people flip a shit, you know? Yes. Um, well, because they can't. This is, I think, one of the basic problems with, with a lot of uh, my liberal friends and colleagues is that they've lost the talent. For making systemic critiques of everything, I mean, ev- everything is now, well said. Everything is now personalized. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you know, if we just get rid of Trump, everything's going to be fine. No, it's not. Yeah, um, Trump is a symptom, right? Symptom. He's, he's not. Uh, he's not uh, the disease itself. He is a symptom. Uh, and you know, if if Trump were to go away tomorrow, um, you would have another one. I think up and running in another five years. Yeah. Unless you deal with, unless you deal with what led to Trump, you will keep getting 
these these types of, uh, of figures in America. And we all we all kind of agree. A criticism of the left from the left seems to be the most important thing. You know, that was Christopher Lash. That was your mentor, Jackson Lear's. Um, you know, more of it, more of it, because again, the left was it was just the communist thing for so long. You know, for for so many of its leading lights. But yeah, we're going to have to have you back on, Gene, when you come out with this book on automation. If not before, mm -hmm. you think it's got. If it's not 800 pages, we're looking maybe 300. I don't know. You tell me. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. So let me let me just say a little bit about that. So okay. uh, I got interested in this topic, uh, I guess, in the mid-2010s, when I started noticing a resurgence of interest in robotics and automation, uh, not just in the business press, but in like left-wing periodicals like Jacobin. Yeah. And, uh, and and especially the fact that so many Jacobin writers were were celebrants of this. All in. You know what the hell's going on here? Uh, it's in the know, land in California where their headquarters are. I think you know it's just there. It's Silicon or so. I don't know. Uh, so I wrote this two part essay uh, for Raritan, uh, Jackson's journal that he that he edits, and um, I guess it was maybe about a month before the pandemic began. Uh, he asked me. If I wanted to turn this into a very short book for this this book series that he's editing um, through Rutgers University Press, it's kind of like I don't know if you guys are aware of Prickly Paradigm Press. Uh, with, yeah, it's a, it's an imprint of the University of Chicago Press, and um, it's basically a bunch of short books on contemporary topics. Okay. Uh, so they're basically they're not usually any longer than about a hundred pages. Oh, okay. So. Um, that's what I'm that's what I'm working on. Uh, it'll probably be about 100 pages, maybe, if, maybe a few more. Very but cool. uh, no, it's not going to it's not going to be the Leviathan size. Um, <laughs> but but everybody agrees. And that's like, you know, let's not. Uh, but every page is great. As Michael said, the prose is uh, just superb throughout. Uh, yeah. I use the index, you know, for so many things. Um, you know, I saw you. Yeah, have it's going to be around there. for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So be one of my uh, go-tos. This was sure. so much fun. This was so much fun. So let's, you know, I think we're all going to part ways knowing that we're going to reconvene, hopefully, if Gene, you're willing, reconvene in this space uh, again, if not on a somewhat regular basis. Um, what do you have planned for the weekend, Gene? Just sitting on the porch of the Airbnb in Wayne and watching the deer and hopefully not the raccoon. Okay, Michael. Uh the kids are well. Some of the kids are coming. I have two kids to live out of state, but I oh, think for Father's Day, coming for Father's Day. Yeah, and of course I have to cook because we just took a steer to the butcher, and he's back. So we're wow. having steak. Okay, yeah. We have a neighbor who uh, I think a whole cow. You know when they mix all the good pieces, somebody will just turn the whole cow into hamburger meat. It's really good. And this guy, he somebody had to get rid of it. We just inherited a lot of it, but it's the best hamburgers I've ever had. But uh, I'll go to the. Uh, Best baseball team in the world, Rochester Red Wings game tomorrow. My daughter bought tickets for the family. And um, and so this will be great. And Gene, I can't thank you enough. So funny, so intelligent. It's good to see like a, a good leftist out there. I didn't know there's too many of you around. You know? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we're, tr we're, we're fighting the good fight. <laughs> yeah. We're going to come look at you in a museum I'll, I'll sometime. I'll continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, listeners, for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you next week.